0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Village Global, Venture Stories i Wayne, co-founder and partner, joined here today by Paul Martino Bullpen, of Bullpen Capital, who is himself a serial founder, as well as a founder of a VC firm about 10 years ago. They've just announced Fund 5 and added an amazing new partner, Anne, and we're going to dig in today to Paul's entrepreneurial stories, his lessons for entrepreneurs, all about Bullpen Capital and their thesis, and what it's like to work with them and pitch them. So now, without further ado, Paul, what drove the name choice of Bullpen Capital?
0: So that, That's a great, great opening question. And Ann, thanks so much for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. When we were starting the fund, the whole thesis behind the fund was we knew that there was going to be a gap between the seed and the Series A. We saw the explosion of seed funds first, first round and floodgate. And, you know, True was there early and SoftTech. And we knew that that was going to explode. And we kind of guessed that the Series A would stay the same. So there'd be this event horizon in between the seed and the series A. We now call it post seed. But when we were brainstorming this, we didn't have a name. And my partner, Rich Melman, who started Electronic Arts back in 82, we were in a meeting and he said, you know, Paul, what we're doing is we're kind of building a bigger backstop for these companies. So we kind of were thinking, OK, what's it like? So the next meeting we have is with this guy, Chad Durbin. Chad Durbin was the 08 World Series champion on the Philadelphia Phillies. He had this sports recruiting website called Showcase U Sports. He wanted to match high school students to scholarships for for athletics. And we told him what we were doing. He's like, so you guys kind of do for the startups what I do for the starting pitcher, because he was a bullpen relief pitcher. And we're like, yeah, we should call it bullpen because we're the bullpen for the startups. And that's literally how we got the name, because Chad happened to be the guy in our office as we were brainstorming.
1: Wow. That's a good serendipitous story. So now let's go way back. We'll come back to bullpen, but let's go way back, maybe circa 2002 or so. Yep. And you had some ideas in social media. Tell yep. us about, um, about working with Mark Pincus and Chris Law and and Tribe. What was that about and what did you learn? So Tribe
0: is the canonical successful failure story of Silicon Valley. We all lost all of our money, make, make no mistake. It was, it was a failure in that regard, but it was the successful failure. We were in the right pond. It led to the formation of Zynga. It led to the formation of Aggregate Knowledge. And God knows how many other social media companies that have now been formed after that. For example, one of my product managers at, at, at Aggregate Knowledge went on to form Scopely, the game company in LA. So the lineage of successful failure from Tribe is significant. What were we doing at Tribe? We knew that social networking would be a better way to solve problems. And Pincus's original idea was socially networked classifies to take on Craigslist would be a great idea. Wouldn't you rather do business with someone who you knew who they were as opposed to the random person who shows up to your house with a check to buy your bike? And we never figured it out, right? We tried a bunch of times. And some things worked, some things didn't work. We became the Burning Man crowd. If you wanted to organize a group to go to Burning Man, Tribe was your place to go. We ended up being a niche community, never figured out the seed audience, but we knew so much about what was driving social media, why people went, how to target people. And so the targeting became aggregate knowledge. The what else to do became the games at Zynga. Uh, And so it it was one of the most
1: important things I did in my life, even though it was a failure. Wow. Amazing story. Okay. So let's fast forward to aggregate knowledge, which was backed by Kleiner Perkins. Well done. So I guess that one was just going to be smooth sailing, right?
0: Uh, It wasn't quite. (laughs) I will tell you, it started off charm though. The first year or two, we couldn't have done it any better. You know, We went from two people in a bedroom to to a couple million dollars in revenue inside of a year. Life was easy. The original business model was using social kind of data to do better recommendations and personalization. And we landed the big accounts right out of the gate. Washington Post, the New York Times, the overstock on the commerce side. And, and it was just a charmed first year or two. And then quickly, oh, crap, everyone can copy us really, really quickly. And boy, they did. And we went from being the only game in town to literally having a new competitor spring up every week. And, and we're like, oh, oh, this is going to be a lot harder than we thought.
1: <laughs> and then, correct me if I'm wrong, you got a double whammy, which is up came the 2008 financial crisis.
0: Right. So 06 and 07, we could, we could do no wrong in 06 and 07. So Tribe was 02 through 05. We started aggregate knowledge 06 and 07, charmed first two years, great investors. Randy Comisar from Kleiner couldn't ask for a better investor. And then the wheels start coming off. Renewals are slow. The market is saturated. The competitors are showing up. All of a sudden, a product that I'm charging a million dollars for, I can't get a $100,000 renewal. I go into a board meeting in January of 08, and I tell Randy, I say, Randy, it's not working. Like, the first two years were a false positive. I'm sorry. And Randy told me, he's like, look, you're smart. You got a lot of money in the bank. We love your team. Go figure it out. And in that go figure it out six months is when the financial collapse happened in the summer of 08 And so we had had the lucky break of no one caring about us. So the nice part, and we wrote this up and it got published, was the 08 recession basically saved the company because since everybody wrote us off and didn't care, we were given the extra time to figure out how to pivot the company into the advertising and targeting technology that we were great at. And it ultimately led to a great outcome. But if the 08 financial crisis hadn't happened and everyone forgot about us, the company probably would have gone under.
1: Wow. And so do you, when founders who are navigating 2020 with pandemic and all kinds of challenges, what kinds of advice do you give them?
0: I tell them that story. I go, listen, you have to, you have to play the hand you are dealt. And if the hand you are dealt is, wow, COVID has shut down all of my offices and I was going to open a brand new warehouse, but wait a minute, everyone's at home and can't wait to use my product. You got to go figure it out. Like my story was everyone forgot about my company. So I had time to reinvent myself. So you have to take this and view this as no matter how difficult or hard it is, it's an opportunity for you. You must look at it as an opportunity. You must figure out how to leverage it in some way. And yes, it's a horrible situation. People are dying. Restaurants are shutting down. Main street is literally getting killed right now. I'm involved in a food and beverage project right now. And it is just depressing to work with people who are in that industry. Like in venture, it's great. We have a portfolio of risk. But if you own a single restaurant, that's your livelihood. That's that's your job. That's your career. That's your ego. So we are fortunate in the venture business that we can kind of reinvent ourselves so easily. So please take this as an opportunity to figure out how to make your business better on the backside of this. And it's a shame that a lot of, Non-venture businesses in Main Street don't have the opportunities that we do.
1: So now let's fast forward to 2010. Congratulations, you had a successful exit of aggregate knowledge to New Star. Is that right? And, um, but then it's 2010, and you're thinking about venture. And um, how was the ecosystem different than today?
0: So you got to remember, 2010, there are literally somewhere between 20 and 40 seed funds in the entire country. 20 to 40, that's it. (laughs) I I was an early LP in first-round capital, so I got to watch that from the ground up. Very lucky break that I became an LP in, like, 2005 or so. And um, another funny Mark Pincus story. This guy named Mike Maples called in a favor to come to Silicon Valley from Austin, and Mark Pincus was supposed to spend the week playing tour guide to him. This is in the early, you know, in the kind of wind-down days of Tribe, the early days of Zynga and Aggregate Knowledge. Pinkus calls me up. He says, I don't know who this guy is. I'm going to Tahoe. Can you go meet him? And Mike and I have been best friends ever since I was the lucky person to fill in for Mark. Wow. And, and so when Mike was growing Floodgate, he asked me to become one of his partners. Ultimately, Ann became his partner uh, uh, and, and has been a great partnership. But he offered me the job. And I was like, I don't want to be a venture person. I'm going to go start my next company. He's like, no, 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 Paul. You, you don't understand the business is changing. There's me and there's Jeff Clavier and there's Koppelman, but this whole new wave is gonna happen. You're a data science geek. You need to start thinking about venture because the whole industry is gonna change over the next five years. And Mike was dead right. And, and we went from 20 to 40 to 200
1: and now we're over a thousand and that's crazy. That is amazing. So there's a parallel universe where you, Anne and Mike were partners.
0: <laughs> yeah. And and it was funny because I flat turned down. I, I told Mike, I said, Mike, you venture people are weenies. I don't want to do that. I'm an entrepreneur. Like I, I'm not gonna be a sellout. Like, I don't want to do it. But then what happened is he got me thinking about venture like an entrepreneur. Like start from a blank sheet of paper. Don't don't just go build a fund. Like what's broken in the business to fix? And that got me inspired because if it was I'm gonna be a managing partner at a venture fund, I'd be like oh my God, like, please don't ever introduce me like that. That's insulting, right? Like if you introduce me though, as a founding GP of a new and innovative idea, like that's that's for me, I'm an entrepreneur still. That was the kind of realization between 08 and 09 and 10 that, yeah, if I could start from a blank sheet of paper and start a new kind of fund, that would be up my alley. But joining an
1: existing fund, that wouldn't suit my personality. Got it. And so you had an insight about the post-seed phase. And can you talk a little bit about what characterizes that phase? So it was just a simple math problem. And it was something
0: anybody with an hour of work could have looked at. If you have 20 or 40 seed funds, and that goes from 20 or 40 to 200, that's what we modeled. We guessed it would go to 200. And you have the same number of Series A funds you would have a lot of promising companies that essentially didn't raise enough money from the seed ecosystem. And you wouldn't want to kill them because a lot of them were going to turn out to be winners. They just needed another year. So you raised 2 million in seed because it was cheap and easy instead of 5 million in series A. Well, what happened if you needed the other two? And so we just penciled it out. We said, well, what if we went into business to identify those companies that need the extra 2 million bucks, even though it got cheap to get the first two? And sure enough, a lot of these companies existed. Everything from a FanDuel to an Ipsy to uh, now in our later portfolio, an Oculus, a Grove, consumer companies, enterprise companies. And, and the knock on our model in the early days was, yeah, Paul, that's a cute idea, but the, there won't be any winners. All, all the winners will be identified quickly and you'll pick among the losers. I'm like, no, just because you raised a million or two million less than you should have doesn't make you a loser. Actually you might be the most successful company in the whole batch. I'm happy to give you another million or 2 million bucks on the backside. Having seen the whole first to $2 million get spent, like, wait a minute. I think I might get the better deal. And, and that was the, that was the bet. The bet was we would have as many aces in our deck as the ones that immediately went to series a and now uh, 10 years in, with a lot of billion-dollar outcomes, people are like, yeah, that, that, that part of the deck has got a lot of good cards in it, too.
1: And is that gap in post-seed still existent, or how, is, how have the ratios changed with 1,000? It's
0: actually, right, and great question. It's worse now than we ever predicted. When, when you model it going to 200 funds and study state, and it went to 1,000 funds, the democratization of the front end of the funnel, which I think is one of the most awesome things that's happened in the past decade, more people got to become entrepreneurs, more different kinds of people, more businesses that no one said were going to be venture businesses. Founders who didn't go to the fancy schools, who grew up in Cincinnati and started their companies in Orlando, they started getting money because seed funds got created in Orlando and in Cincinnati. So so we overshot by such a huge margin by going to over a thousand that more and more companies were able to raise seed but not get to series A. So the gap is maybe an order of magnitude bigger than we predicted, penciling it out in Mike's office all those years ago.
1: Amazing. So now fast forward to fund five and $130 million fund. And what is the um, definition of the company you're looking for? Who should come talk to you?
0: Amazingly, it hasn't changed much in 10 years. The numbers are slightly different, but they're pretty similar. A company that needs to see me has raised three-ish millions dollars in seed, is somewhere between 10 and 20 people, is making about a million dollars a year, is burning about a hundred to two hundred thousand, and went to the series A firms and they said, you know, what you're doing is pretty cool, but show me two more quarters of growth like that, and then I'll write you a big check. And if you're a CEO and you're hearing this, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you're sitting there, you're like, I don't get it. I'm so close, but yet I'm so far away. Why does no one want to get me another $3 bucks? It's because the seed funds want to write first checks and Series A funds want to write big checks. So what happens if you need another small check? There is a persistent ongoing gap for exactly these kinds of companies. And we are amazed that we still have so few co-investors. If there's one thing I lament, it's the 10 years in, so few people still do what we do which in general, as a competitive landscape thing, you'd be like, that's awesome.
1: But having a couple more co-investors would probably be a good thing. Got it. So in the case that you're um, funding a founder in a $3 million post-seed round, generally, are you alone or is it with angels? Or how how do you think about your average ticket size maybe?
0: So we'll end up writing, say it's a $4 million round. So it's ticked up a bit. So now our average round is more like four instead of three. We'll write a $2.5 million check into that $4 million round And the other million and a half better come from your insiders or we know what they think about the company. So it tends to be us as the lead catalyzing the insiders to double down because they like it. They know it's a long-term winner but need some extra money. We would love it to maybe sometimes do bigger $5 million rounds, two from us, two from a third party and a million from the insiders. But quite honestly, we rarely have co-investors. We will sometimes get a strategic a Salesforce, a Comcast have been common co-investors, but traditional other venture funds are rarely our co-investors. Interesting. And do you take a board seat? We try not to. And the reason is not because we don't care about governance. It's we want to go in there and coach the CEO. We want to be the trusted advisor to the CEO. We want the 2 a.m. phone call. And by the way, if it's a company that is a well-formed seed syndicate, they have a board that's already functioning. They have an investor seat. They have a CEO seat. They have the common seat. I don't need to touch that. Let me come in and be a value-added observer. Let me pour some gas on the now expanding sales, whether it's a funnel or a direct-to-consumer company, and let me coach up the CEO as they hire the rest of the management team. We found that to be a very, very powerful formula. Sometimes we have to go on the board because the board was poorly formed in the prior round, but that's not our preference.
1: Got it. And you've mentioned that you look for companies that are far field and misunderstood. Yes. Tell Say more. We, we love
0: our off by ones.
1: <laughs> and, and when we say
0: off by one, so by stage, post seed, you're off by one. By category, you're stewing, you're doing Grove Collaborative. You're doing e-commerce in 2016 when Amazon's going to kill everybody. Nope. Sorry. I don't care that you're from a fancy school in, in San Francisco. You're in the wrong category. That's another off by one. Off by one's another one. FanDuel from Fund One. A husband and wife founding team, Edinburgh, Scotland. Well, you can imagine that that wasn't a real good check the box for the founder background. And then, then of course, finally, geography. Uh, Plenty of our companies are in places like Cincinnati or Seattle. And so either by stage, by background, by category, or by geography, You are easily overlooked by the venture ecosystem. Come see us. Have
1: a big chip on your shoulder, and we're going to love you. And you also say you dive deeper into data than most funds in order to unearth hidden gems. What's that about?
0: That's right. And by the way, that's what one of, we're so excited, Anne Lies joined us. She was our data consultant before she became our general partner. We just hired her. A tremendous asset because there's a little bit of art and science to what we do. If you want to find an unloved gem, you've got to actually crunch a lot of data. You can't just do that on pure gut. If you're getting cold emails from LinkedIn from companies in Seattle, you better have a way to quickly triage the data. And by the way, we do that. We look at companies that are cold emails on LinkedIn from Seattle. You don't need a warm introduction to Bullpen for us to take you seriously. Be an entrepreneur with a business that's doing a million or so in revenue. We're going to take a look. And I don't care where you went to school or who your dad was or how you got introduced to me. And that's what we've gotten very good at. And Anne is really taking it to the next level. Well, congratulations. Run your business on. Send us the deck. We'll tell you in a week if this is a business we think we can invest in because we have built a really good analytics infrastructure for identifying
1: these unloved gems. Super. Well, congratulations on hiring Anne. And you have said she's a data scientist, but not a data dogmatist. That's right. Yeah
0: if you just only and I, by the way i'm built the same way i'm a phd dropped out in high performance computing and predictive modeling so i'm a data geek just like ann she did her phd work at harvard on all the same kind of stuff but what you learn from rich melman who we, we view as our emotive partner at the fund sometimes a business either is going to work or not work as he says it's the physics of the situation and he'll walk into a meeting he goes paul the data says this, but that's never going to work. Or the data says this, and it has to happen. And so if you become too dogmatic and say that the data tells you the whole story, that's how I can guarantee you'll you'll drive the, the car off the cliff. The art must meet the science. There has to be a creative artistic judgment in the data that you look at. And getting that blend right is the magic of bullpen. Having the emotive person like Rich the data person like me and Ann, all in the same meeting, we think that's where the real magic happens. Great. And what's
1: the right time for a company to pitch you?
0: When you are banging your head against the wall because you need two to three million more dollars and no one takes you seriously, that's when you need to come see us. By the way, you don't need to come see us six months in advance to create a relationship with us. We don't need that. We did deals before COVID on Zooms with founding teams that we literally had a week or two, all remotely. Spot hero, our deal in Chicago, one of the leaders in on-demand parking, obviously had a tough year because of COVID, positioned well for great growth in 2021 because gained market share. We had to do that deal all on Zoom. And I remember someone saying, "You know, Paul, you've never met the founder, are you really gonna do that? I can't tell you how valuable it was to have one under our belt like that when 2021 rolled around. Because we, we had muscle memory for, you have to make a quick decision. You're not going to be able to visit the office You have until Friday, go. And yes, we had more time in 2021, but it's really important that we had done deals like that. So when COVID came around and you couldn't do the office visit, which by the way, I still love, uh, we, were, we were not afraid to do it where I think a lot of
1: other firms were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Right. And do you have any advice for companies that are pitching you? numbers and data. Don't
0: show me a product demo. Uh, Don't give me the fancy story. Don't tell me where you went to school. Put up the Excel spreadsheet of how you're running the company for the next six months. I'm either going to look at cell 23 and say bullshit or not. And that's our investment process. So a lot of CEOs find our process a little bit jarring because it's the opposite of most firms. Most firms, who are you? Where are you from? What's your vision of the future? look, your seed fund has already told me you're interesting, right? You have money from Koppelman at first round. Okay, check that box. Show me how you're going to turn the crank. I want to see column 26, two quarters from now. Do I believe that number? Yes or no. So our process is literally in the muck, in the weeds of the operating plan. And if you don't know your operating plan, please don't call us because you're <laughs> going to get our your butt
1: kicked in a meeting at our office. And um, how do you think about advising founders for Series A? Because some people say the goalposts are shifting for Series A. How do you think about that?
0: Absolutely. The the milestones keep getting higher. As the Series A funds get bigger and their checks get larger, the milestones keep getting further and further out. And so training our CEOs for what is needed for that next round is a big part of the boot camp we put them through. So it's also why we like to be the CEO advisor, not the board member. Let me tell you what you need to do to play this game. Let me show you how to perfect your pitch. And oh, by the way, you came in and pitched us on all this number stuff. The next investor is going to want to hear all that vision and product demo stuff. So let's, let's go do that now. Uh, but you didn't need that for us.
1: Great. And are there rules of thumb that founders should have in mind for Series A? Or is that a dangerous trap to fall into is try to meet some heuristics for A? Also,
0: I think some heuristics are necessary but they're by no means prescriptive. But if you don't have some sense of where the goalposts are, you have no idea if you're in the ballpark. So what we tell our founders at the phone, let's say you're an enterprise software company. You come in to see us, you're at a million dollar run rate. You had two quarters of really great growth. You're at two salespeople. You want to go to 12. I want to help you go from two salespeople to 12. I want you to go from a million in revenue to 5 million in revenue over the next 18 months. Because if you grow three X a year, and you kind of go from two to 12 people, I know there's gonna be a lot of bidders on the backside because if you're growing that fast and you're at at least a 5 million run rate and you got a sales team of 12, almost everybody who's an enterprise SaaS investor is gonna take you seriously. Uh, And sure, they might do it at four or they might wanna wait till eight, but I've given you enough guidance that you don't know how to run the company for the next 18 months.
1: And do Series A funds look at a company that's done, say, a seed and a pre-seed and or in a post-seed differently than other companies, or or no? Are they? Do you feel like they're looking at all these? Just what is the opportunity in front of them, and it doesn't matter as much the pre- cap table history of a company.
0: It doesn't now. It did ten years ago when we were doing our little trick in ten and eleven and twelve. It was weird. Well, was this again? It was is it kind of a bridge or is it an unloved gem? And we're like, no, no, guys, this is an unloved gem. It just needed a little more time. This is not a six-month bridge to nowhere, which is a peer. But once we got good at that and the messaging around it, and once we had round-trip entrepreneurs who were telling the story that the bullpen round was the building scaling round of the company, then the Series A investors are like, hey, yeah, yeah, I don't care that they did a pre-seed, a seed, and a post-seed. It doesn't matter. There's... Eight million in the company, they got to five million in revenue. Awesome. I don't care that they did three or five rounds. It's a very, very different ecosystem now, 10 years later. In the early days, there was some weird signaling, but not anymore. It's how much money did you
1: raise to get to where you need? Oh, you did it in that many rounds? Who cares? And do you have any data? Because I feel like I've seen this in the the industry on what percent of companies do a post-seed now. It's really high. And I guess it also depends how you define, because some people are doing $5 million A's and some people would say that's not an A in 2020, but.
0: That's right. So, And there is a bit of a garbage in, garbage out to that data, (laughs) unfortunately, because I'll tell you this, we are in general, the third institutional round in the company, because there was 500,000 bucks in friends and family a two to $3 million seed round, and we're actually the third round. But wait a minute, what happened if you had a set of notes in between? Am I the fourth round? And so am I then the post-seed round and the notes were the seed round? Wait a minute, you did two sets of notes and they converted into my round? Are all three of those rounds the post-seed round? So there really is a hard accounting problem when you look at the data sets to say, that was the A, that was the B, that was the C, that was the A, especially when so many founders are essentially doing this rolling close process in the early stages
1: of the company. Right, and it may be more common. I think it's really interesting because I was raised at a time when we were advised to say, only raise as much as you need to, with a little buffer to get to the next inflection point in value. And potentially, because you're doing up rounds with, in many cases, right? In all, uh, virtually all cases, right? W- from the seed round, this is actually a great strategy for founders, right? right. You raise more at a higher cap or valuation. And, and, and that's actually I really, really an
0: insightful question. It was one of the big issues with the thing. If we were going to do down rounds and sidewards rounds and crush the founders, would founders come out and go, you know, the bullpen round was the most important round I did in the company. They believed in me. So we knew that there would be this sweet spot where there was a nice markup, but plenty of room left for the A fund to come in and write their big check. Getting that math right was really what we were doing on the board at Mike Maple's office all those years ago. We're like, there's room in between because- you know, the seed is getting done at six or eight, the post seeds getting done at 12 or 15, but the series a fund wants to put 20 in on 65. Wow. There's a lot of room in there.
1: It's great. You've had a lot of experience in your career hiring. And I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about some of your hiring tips, including avoiding front runners.
0: Oh Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Front runners are dangerous. I, I, I don't know if, if, me or Bill Campbell or someone in the Kleiner Perkins orbit coined that phrase. I don't remember exactly where it came from, but it happened to me at Aggregate Knowledge. Aggregate Knowledge was the hottest thing in the world, 06 and 07. Again, could do no wrong. All the people who showed up to interview, they had done their four years at Google. They were ready to do their next four years at the next hottest startup in town. And we were it. And you know what? We stubbed our toe and they hit the door. And they were out quicker than I could blink And I had never experienced that in my career. I had never worked with this class of people who were, I'm going to go from hit startup to hit startup and you will pay me a lot and give me a lot of stock. And my resume will be eight companies that I was at the right time for. And uh, Bill Campbell and I, we we would have these conversations about, yeah, Martino, you got trouble. You got all these front runners when you were hot shit and now you're not, you know, what are you going to do? And it is really actually a hard problem to deal with because you do need some of that DNA, some of that been there, done that, really early at a Google or a Facebook, early phases of scaling. But if you get too many of them because you're a kid in a candy store and you can hire them all, which is what we made the mistake of doing at Aggregate Knowledge, if it's not all lollipops and gumdrops, they're going to go to the next company because that's their MO. And so a good balance of front runners. And more, I don't know what a non-frontrunner is called. That's what we needed to have done. And it's advice I give to my companies. You better have people who believe in the vision and are going to stick with you through good and bad times, as well as kind of plug and play mercenaries, which your frontrunner is. And how do you screen for that in interviewing? I'm not sure I know. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've got a couple things I look for. There's a certain resume sequence that kind of makes you nervous <laughs> And it's, hmm. Right when the four year vesting cliff ended, you were out at the last two. Hmm. Okay, got it. So that's a hint maybe. And by the way, that's by no means a definite, but that's the kind of thing you look at and go, oh, this person sticks around three to four years, goes to the next one. It's all blue chip investors. Okay, where was the risk actually? And then you start asking questions about, okay, tell me what your risk profile is like. You You say you're an early stage startup person, you know, tell me a time when, you know, the CEO came in and said the funding fell apart and how did you respond? And if the answer is, well, that's never happened to me and I'd be out, well, they probably told you.
1: (laughs) Amazing. And you're obviously a continuous learner. You're an innovator. How do you keep up in today's world? How do you continue learning? There's a lot of sources. There's a lot of data out there. What's your go-to?
0: Well, so I'd say on the data sources side, there really are, it's, it's such an awesome time to be an entrepreneur. I started my first company. There was no internet, right? I, I'm sitting in my bedroom in suburban Philadelphia. I'm trying to figure out how to start a company. There's these things called bulletin board networks, right? I, I'm, I'm logging on to CompuServe to find out about how to start a company. You know, all you entrepreneurs now who are starting your first company, how lucky are you that you can read Fred Wilson's blog? You can, you can look at Matt Otko's Twitter, uh, I, I mean, it's just amazing, all the resources. You can read Randy Commissar's book, Getting to Plan B. So that side is awesome. And you don't need any help from me. But I think the place where my entrepreneurs need my help is I got to stay sharp. If I am just now a bunch of platitudes, because I have histories from 02 with Pincus and 08 with Commissar and 08 with, and, and 08 with uh, 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 10 with Bill Campbell, what good are, what good am I a decade later? So I have stayed sharp. I started a a film company a few years ago. I actually had a film released into the theaters a year ago. I'm working on a new uh, sports betting venue, which is half sports betting venue, half casino. And so I've told my limited partners, I'm going to continue to stay in some small portion of my time as chairman of these kind of endeavors, because I got to stay sharp. If I'm not at the front lines of solving entrepreneurial endeavors- I think the half-life of my knowledge just is going away and and making sure every year I've got my hands in a new thing that I'm, I'm a part founder of or I'm a chairman of. Absolutely, I need to do that because without that, I don't think I get to serve my CEOs the right way. Super.
1: And uh, last question, because there's a lot of emerging managers that listened uh, to this podcast as well. How would you advise somebody who's thinking about starting a fund, whether it's a rolling fund or, or some, uh, a, a venture fund? Main thing is
0: get into business and, and absolutely fake it until you make it here. And I don't mean bullshit people. I mean, do your first deal. Beg, borrow, and steal. Do it as an SPV. Do it on AngelList as a syndicate. Do three deals as a syndicate. Have one anchor investor do two deals with you. I know a lot of emerging managers like, look, I'm doing a $100 million fund. I'm not going to do a, do-, do a deal until I do my $50 million first close. Well, geez, if I did that, I would still be raising my first fund. I, it would be 10 years later and I would still be searching for enough money to get to my $50 million fund. We did $8 million in a rolling first close. We did deals as though we were a $100 million fund when we had 8 million bucks that we didn't really even know if we had 8 million bucks. A couple of those people, I was nervous that they'd wire the check. So you, you gotta kind of go into business and the old school 50% in the first close up against the target. Sure, that applies to some small number of managers. But if you really wanna be an entrepreneurially minded first time manager, you better act like you're in business and do it on small money the way that your startup companies are doing it. Great advice.
1: And um, any other things I should have asked you that I didn't?
0: Oh no, this has been great. I I really appreciate the 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 trip down memory lane we got to do here because it is important especially in an environment like this in 2020 where no one no one no one had covid on their scorecard for what would happen in 20. At the end of 2019, anybody who had 2020 is, sure, pandemic's going to shut us down. Okay, you win life because you got that. But we did go through the tech bust of O2. We went through uh, I mean 0102. We went through 9/11. we went through the 0809 debacle. and you know what? the third time you see the debacle, you have a set of muscle memory about how not to lose your cool when everything is crazy around you. And so the combination of experience from seeing, seeing it before with some cool hands applying it to the current time frame, as I've said in other interviews, hey, entrepreneurs, you're up. This is your this is your 9-11. This is your debacle. You got to figure it out. People like me are here to help, but uh, you got to figure it out.
1: Good words to live by. You're up. And on that really inspiring note, Paul, thank you so much for making time. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you check us out at villageglobal.vc